Hey guys, it's Greg with the Apple Explained Podcast. Today is Friday, September 4th, and I actually just watched the Steve Jobs movie starring Michael Fassbender, written by Aaron Sorkin. I watched that last night, and that was probably my fourth or fifth time seeing it. I just realized it was on Netflix. I really enjoyed it. I love that movie. It's probably my second favorite Apple movie after the Pirates of Silicon Valley. I highly recommend watching that if you haven't seen it. But it got me thinking about something. And it's what I want to start off talking about on today's podcast. And this does relate to some Apple news that's come out this week. There was a headline that said, excuse me, Apple continues to dominate North American wearables market. Uh, with a growth of 9% year over year. Apple, as of quarter two 2020, which is right now, they have a 37.6% share of the wearables market in the North America, followed by Fitbit at 19.3% and then Garmin at 8.1%. So they have essentially double the market share of the second place company in the wearables market, which is incredible. Now, what is the wearables market? It includes things like the Apple Watch, AirPods, and of course, those products are doing extremely well. They're selling extremely well. And It may not be big news to most people, but for me it is. And it really put things in perspective seeing that movie last night. Because in that movie, we see Steve Jobs struggle to create a successful product. We know Apple created the Apple II, which was their big hit. It was their first big hit. It's what made them so much money, millions and mil—I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars—in the early years of Apple. But the problem came when they had to create a follow-up to the Apple II. First, it was the Apple III. They tried and they failed. It was a business-oriented computer aimed at sort of optimizing the computing experience for business customers. And the reason why it was so focused on the business market is because the Apple II was so successful with those users, business users, because of an application called VisiCalc. And VisiCalc was called the killer app of the Apple II. And what that means is, it's the, applica- it, it's, it's the application that makes people want to buy the product. And ideally, every device or computer should have a killer app that draws people to it. And VisiCalc was the killer app for the Apple II. And I think Apple was trying to capitalize on the business appeal with the Apple III but it ran into some huge problems. First, it was expensive. Second, it had bugs that were so bad, 
Apple had to issue a recall of the first 14,000 units that were sold. So it was a failed product. It only sold about 10,000 units in its two-year lifespan because then Apple released the Lisa. And that's one of the computers that was featured in that Aaron Sorkin, Steve Jobs movie. And the problem with the Lisa was that it was also way too expensive. It was $10,000. And even though it had that cutting edge graphical user interface that Steve Jobs loved. It had the mouse, it had the cursor, it had a very um, impressive tech sheet, tech spec sheet. It was not practical. So the Lisa failed. And then Apple moved on with the Macintosh. Now this was Steve Jobs' baby. Even though Jeff Raskin began the project, he was replaced by Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs really felt this was his creation. It was his vision for the future of computing. He believed it would change the world. It was released. He thought it would sell a million units in the first 90 days. It didn't. It didn't flop in the first three months, but it didn't sell that well. It wasn't of a big hit. The problem was that after the first three months of mediocre sales, those sales dropped dramatically and stopped making Apple money quite quickly. So the majority, I believe about 70% of Apple's profits, even after the Macintosh was released, came from the Apple II, which at that point was going on eight years old. So you see this struggle of a company who was sort of a one-hit wonder back in the 80s and even the 90s. And they're struggling to, to, to follow up that hit with another to prove that it wasn't a one-off. They do know how to create good products. They do understand what customers need. And it didn't happen. And then Steve Jobs was forced out of Apple. So I'm just creating the context, sort of a backdrop of how to view the tech market today. Because that article I just read that said Apple is dominating the wearables market, it's interesting to track through Apple's history and see how they got there. Because they at, they at one point were dominating the computer market with the Apple II in the heyday of that computer. They had about, I think, over 30% of the market. And that dropped year after year after year until they were at 3% of the market. But what they did, and this is what Apple does extremely well, is they don't focus on day-to-day -day opportunistic improvements. They don't think, okay, what can we do today that will get us more of, of the market share in the computer industry? Because if they approached the problem that way, then they would simply do what Microsoft did, license Mac OS to manufacturers, and that will immediately get you some more market share. And that's what some previous Apple CEOs wanted the company to do. But Steve Jobs ended that initiative when he returned in 1997. Because in Steve Jobs' mind, in Apple's mind, they weren't worried about the computer market. 
They were worried about the market of tomorrow. What's going to be the next big market in the tech industry that we can dominate? That if, if we get to first with the right device, with the best device, we can dominate the next era of technology. And that's exactly what happened. That's why we're where we're at today. That's why Apple is dominating the world today. They're the most valuable company in the world. It happened with the iPod. You know, Apple Apple began to regain some market share in the computer industry with the iMac in 1998, which was very popular. It was finally, finally another hit computer after the Apple II, although it came much, much later and it saved the company. That was a success. The iBook was a success. But but they were stuck. And they always have been, to be honest. Even today, Apple is sort of stuck in this position in the computer market where it's it's not a dominant, you know, share of the industry. But it's enough to be making revenue for the company because Apple always ensures a healthy revenue margin on their products, a healthy profit margin. So even if they're not selling the most computers, they're still making the most money from computer sales. And they do that with all their products. But when they created the iPod, it was a completely new market. You could say that MP3 players existed, but it wasn't on the same level of the iPod. The iPod was the modern music player. I mean, just like computers existed before the you know Apple I or Apple II, the Apple II really was the modern computer for that era. It's why it did so well. And it was priced well. And the iPod was priced, I wouldn't say well, but for the value you get for your money. And that's another thing to consider is that people are willing to pay more for a product if they think they're getting value for their money. And when it came to the iPod, there was really nothing to compare it to when it was released. The design, the hardware, the software, the simplicity, how easy it was to use, a thousand songs in your pocket. It was pretty hard to find a music player that offered a thousand songs at the time. And if you did find one, it was pretty expensive. The iPod came out at $300. Competing high capacity music players were about $200 to $250. So it wasn't that much more. And the lower end, you know, $100, $150 music players only held maybe 15 or 20 songs. You could put like one album on there at a time, which is not very helpful. The, the problem, though, is if you bought one of those high-capacity music players that fit 500 to 1,000 songs, navigating through your music library was a nightmare because the software interface and the hardware controls on the product did not lend itself to scrolling through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of songs at a time to navigate to one that you like best. It was very complicated. It was, it was very time-consuming and inconvenient. That's why when people used the iPod, it was a intuitive um, understanding. This is it. This is the way you need to browse music with this click wheel. Because what the click wheel did is it allowed you to scroll through thousands of songs effortlessly. You just 
you know, move your thumb in a circular motion and you're scrolling through thousands of songs. You don't have to click, 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 click a button, you know, like a down arrow that takes you one song at a time and you got to click a thousand times to navigate to the song at the bottom. So it was an incredible innovation and it was a huge reason why the iPod did so well. And guess what? Apple dominated the MP3 market. Microsoft tried to compete with the Zune eventually. Uh, they failed. The Zune was discontinued. And that strategy is what Apple has been using since the late 90s. I mean, since the iPod. That was a preview. Because really what the iPod was, was Apple's first mobile device. And it was successful. And it's because I think Apple's philosophy when it comes to products, and it's it's pretty much Steve's philosophy that he introduced to Apple that he instilled in the company and it's 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 still there today it lends itself to mobile products much more than computers because when it comes to optimization that is much more important when you have limited space when you're interacting with the product on a much more personal level because when you're using a computer your input is a mouse and keyboard or a trackpad. That's as far as it goes. It, it, it's not that personal. When you're interacting with an iPod, you have the scroll wheel, the integrated buttons. You're actually holding the device in your hand, how it feels, how it's designed, how this hardware and software is integrated becomes much more important than in a traditional computer. Because someone going from a PC to a Mac may not notice as much of a difference when it comes to that interaction because the interface is the same. It's a keyboard and mouse. But when you use the iPod, it was something people had never experienced before, this click wheel thing. And it becomes extremely clear. It, be it becomes very obvious that it's a better way to use a product. And then you want it right away. You just want it. And that's exactly what Apple did with the iPhone. When multi-touch came out, it was the most, I mean, I can't even describe, and it's, it's really hard, I think, to understand if you weren't there to see that transition happen. Because before the iPhone, everything was buttons and wheels and switches and toggles that was how you interfaced with an electronic device. You never touched the screen. <laughs> In fact, the screens were kind of like sunglasses. You know what I mean? When you, when, you, when you give your friend your sunglasses, you say, don't touch the lens. You know, you don't want to get them all smudgy. That's exactly how people would, would approach devices or displays on devices, even computers. Don't touch the screen. You can point, but don't get your fingerprints all over it. That's how people felt about their cell phones. Even if they were flip phones or the sliding phones, you didn't touch the display. And because of that habit, when the iPhone was introduced with a touch display, that was the main interface method. It did make some people feel uncomfortable. I remember being in eighth grade when the iPhone was introduced Probably the greatest product introduction ever. 
And I remember some of my classmates saying, oh, it's not going to sell. No one wants to touch their phone screen. You're not supposed to touch your phone screen. It's going to get fingerprints. It's going to get oily. It's going to get smudgy. It's going to look terrible. And of course, what they didn't understand is that there's technology that can help solve that. I mean, there's a coating on the iPhone's display, even with the original version, that naturally repels oils from your finger so that it doesn't mess up the quality of the of, of the display when it's on and you can wipe it off easily. And that's still around. But it just proves how much of a monumental shift it was from traditional buttons to a touchscreen. But what it also did is made the interaction with your content and with the device even more personal, even more intimate. And when you take things to that level, when you take the user experience to that personal place, it becomes extremely important that the experience is optimized, that it's controlled extremely, extremely well, every detail is ironed out. Because when you're manipulating something with your fingers, you can feel when it's wrong. You can feel when something's off. You don't necessarily understand why it feels weird or, or it feels wrong, but you know it does because it doesn't feel natural. It's not organic. And that's why Steve Jobs and Apple put so much emphasis on these seemingly minor details of the interface of the iPhone, but that were extremely important when users interact with it. Just like Steve Jobs understood the Mac was uh, more natural for people to use because of the mouse, it's a, it's a pointing device. You know, when we say someone uh, has something on their shirt, we point to it. It's a more natural method of interaction. But the mouse is, is, is not nearly as personal as touch. And so what, what Apple did with the iPhone was incredible and people, of course, tried to copy it the best they could. But what I always heard, and I remember this when I was a sales associate at the University of Cincinnati's bookstore, I worked in the Apple section for about four months. I love that job, by the way. Probably one of my favorite jobs ever. And they said there, there would be people who, who come up and use the iPad and say, oh my gosh, this is so smooth. Like th those are the words they would describe. They would say smooth. They would say clean. They would say polished. They would say, they would use these words that describe Apple's attention to detail when interacting with the device. And even today, I think, of course, Android has, has caught up leaps and bounds. In the early days, it was very rough around the edges. But that experience with the product, I think, is undervalued by a lot of companies because it's not tangible. It's really something intuitive. And I don't think customers even realize it. They just understand that it feels better to use. So anyway, my point in all this is that Apple's attention to those types of details, their attention to optimization when it comes to battery life, when it comes to the interface, it matters much more in mobile devices, especially when getting into touchscreens.
and Apple's focus on those areas paid off extremely well. I mean, it, it became much more apparent. It became much more important. And customers appreciated it more than in the Mac or computers in general. And that's why they were able to dominate these industries. They dominated MP3 market. They dominated smartphone market. They dominate smartwatch market. They dominate the tablet market. And all, all this market dominant, and even the headphone market, I mean, that's something that I think is extremely unexpected. Who was expecting Apple to become the world's biggest headphone manufacturer, most popular headphone manufacturer? I mean, yeah, they were always including headphones with their MP3 players, with, with their iPods, but they were never creating standalone headphones that were selling like hotcakes, like with the AirPods. And it's because, again, of that optimization, they understood the experience customers wanted in a pair of wireless headphones that they weren't getting from anyone else. Apple delivered it. They charged, you know, a fairly high price for it. But now that other companies are trying to do it, they're all sort of in that price range, 140, 150, 160 price range. And people paid for it because they wanted that experience. It was that value that they were looking for and made the purchase extremely worth it. So it's just, it, 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 it's really interesting to look back and to see Apple's philosophy. It's always been the same since the Apple II, well, maybe not Apple II, <laughs> since the Macintosh, at least. Apple's philosophy has been clear. Steve Jobs' philosophy is very clear. But it didn't pay off the same way with computers as it is today with these mobile devices. And what Apple did is they sort of created the future by releasing these mobile devices. They knew everyone would want. They knew everyone would appreciate. People did. And they created the industries that they ended up dominating. Uh, it's really, really incredible. And I would love a movie since we got one about the early days of Apple, about those struggles. I would really love one about the, the modern era of Apple with Steve Jobs um, leaving the company, his death, the transition to Tim Cook, the challenges he faced, the successes he had, and sort of the rise of Apple. Because I think that's something a lot of people take for granted. Apple had a quick rise with the Apple II. As I said, it was their first successful product. But then they were down in the dumps. They were on the verge of bankruptcy. And everyone counted them out. Even when I was young. Okay, I was born in the 90s. I wasn't even around for the, you know, the 80s era. And I was only paying attention to Apple you know, when I was 12 or 13 years old. So that's in the 2000s. Even when I was a kid, I remember people saying Apple is irrelevant. Apple's on their way out. Macs are just a fraction of all computers in the world. And you really got that feeling that they were a struggling company because they really still were. I mean... The position they were in in the 90s, being on the verge of bankruptcy, being in so much debt and not having sufficient revenue coming in 
it has a, a ripple effect into the future. It's not an isolated event. It affects what happens later on. And so in the early 2000s, when Apple was recovering from that, it took them a while. It wasn't until 2004 when Apple was finally declared a debt-free company. So that's five years since 1999 when Apple was, was doing well. In 2004, that's well into the iPod era. Okay, I'm sure many of you were around for the iPod era. And that's only three years before the iPhone. Apple had just become a debt-free company. And I think that, that, put the, that, that put them into a mindset. Never, never take for granted a successful product. Never take for granted a series of successful products. Never take for granted the fact that a company can go from 30% market share to 3% market share in the course of a decade and almost go out of business. Because that's what Apple faced. That was their reality in the 80s and 90s. And I think that's why Apple is extremely cash um, cash heavy. I mean, they, they value a huge huge trove of cash they have you know i don't know how many billions just sitting around and i think it's just that mindset that they have to protect themselves financially because they don't know the next time when they're going to be in trouble so anyway um i just think it's incredible where Apple's at, and I just want people, maybe young people who weren't around for the the earlier days, or even just weren't around for the iPhone, because to finish my story, when there were so many Apple doubters, there were so many Apple haters and doubters when I was young, because really all they had was the Mac and the iPod. That was it. And yeah, the iPod was successful in the MP3 market, but the MP3 market was not, um, it was never nearly as large as the markets we see today. It wasn't like the smartphone market or the tablet market market, or even the smartwatch market. I mean, Apple sells more Apple Watches than iPods, than they ever have iPods. I, in fact, I think they sold more AirPods <laughs> than they ever had iPods, uh, which is incredible. Because back then, the iPod was a huge deal. So they never were super relevant. I think that's my point. And so to see that transition, to see that rise, because it really was a rise. And in my new video that will probably be published uh, today or tomorrow, I talk, the, 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 the title is Apple, the rise and fall and rise again. Because that's exactly what happened. They rose with the Apple II, they fell with the Lisa and Macintosh, and they rose again with the iMac, you know, iBook, iPod, iPhone. And to see them in this position, considering the context of the 90s and the early 2000s, is really mind-blowing. And I think about that almost every day. I'm just shocked. I'm really shocked. I always believed in Apple and I always argued with those people when I was young about 
them doubting the company or it's just overpriced um, status symbols. I mean, that, that's what people were saying about the iPod and about the Mac. People just buy them because they want to look cool. You know, it's like a cool uh, pair of shoes. It's not, it's not actually a better product, and that's what frustrated me. Anyway, enough about that. <laughs> I went on a little bit too long. But while we're on the subject of iPods, here's another headline from this week. Apple is going to declare the last iPod Nano model vintage this month. It came out in 2015. And it's going to be declared vintage, obsolete, which is, I mean, that's, that's just the end of an era of Apple, you know, a really, really important era. I remember when, you know, updated iPods, it, it was like a new iPhone, you know, when, when the iPods were updated every year, we were all looking forward to what the new iPod would have. And now it's going to be obsolete. It's just really, really incredible. I think, I mean, one day we're going to be looking back on the iPhone this way. The final iPhone was released in <laughs> 2025. It's now obsolete in 2030. I, really, I mean, that's going to be going on. The question is, what's going to be the thing that replaces the iPhone? And I talked about that in my last podcast where, you know, I, I think it will be Apple Glass. I think it will be an augmented reality product. Now, I want to talk about rumors. Uh, there's rumors of iPhone 12, Apple Watch Series 6, the iPod Air, uh, the HomePod. I mean, there's a whole dump, a whole, you know, release of leaks and rumors of upcoming products we can expect maybe this month, September, probably next month, October. And I'm going to go through them one by one. And first is the iPhone 12. As you know, there's four iPhone 12 models in the works, supposedly, based on these rumors. This is the first time Apple will be releasing four new iPhone models at once. There's going to be a 5.4-inch. And this small 5.4-inch model will have the form factor. It'll almost be as small as the iPhone 5 which is the same design as the iPhone 5S, which is the same design as the 2016 iPhone SE. So if you ever held one of those in your hands, if you remember how, <laughs> how small they are compared to phones today, it will almost be as small as those models, which I'm really excited about. I, I always liked the feeling of a smaller iPhone. I liked that I could use it with one hand. It was very convenient. It was much more comfortable. But there are compromises, compromises to the typing experience. It's always more comfortable, at least for me, to type on a phone that has a larger display because you have a larger keyboard. Also, there's compromises, just the screen is smaller. If you're watching a YouTube video, if you're watching a movie, if you're watching Netflix, if you're doing something where you would love a larger display, it kind of sucks on the smaller screen. But I am considering it. Um, I can't wait until these these iPhones are out, they're in the stores, I can go and try it out for myself. Because the other size is a 6.1 inch model, there will be two of those. So there's four different models, but three different screen sizes. Now the 6.1 inch model is gonna come in two different um, 
model. The, the, the 6.1 inch screen size iPhone 12 will come in two different models. One of the models will be more expensive and it will have the premium features of sort of like an, an iPhone 11 Pro. And then the other lower end 6.1 inch model will be cheaper and sort of have the budget model features. Uh, maybe, you know, essentially just not have the premium features of the more expensive model. And then there'll be a, the most expensive model, which is 6.7 inches. That will be the largest iPhone Apple's ever made. I think the 11 Pro Max is 6.5 inches. So it'll be a little bit larger. And here's the thing. They're supposedly staggering these iPhone launches with the two cheaper models, the 5.4 and the lower end 6.1 inch models shipping out before the more the, the two more expensive iPhones. Now, when is that? We don't know. We don't know if it's going to be beginning of October for the cheaper models, end of October for the more expensive models. We don't know if it's going to be end of October for the cheaper models and then a couple months later or a month later for the more expensive models. We're not sure. The iPhone X um, came out in November. So we could see a release as late as November. That would not be unprecedented. And as we've discussed before, there is supposed to be a dark blue model that that will or a dark blue blue color for the iPhone 12 that will sort of be the new midnight green. The midnight green on the iPhone 11 Pro was really popular. People loved it, and this will be sort of the new cool color that people, I guess, will want. There's been a lot of people who have wanted a dark blue. I guess I've been seeing people saying that online. But I'm excited for these iPhone 12s. Um, they're supposedly all going to have OLED displays, which will be great. I'm just still wondering about promotion. There, there are still rumors about promotion going back and forth. I thought by this time, I mean, this late in the year, we're basically a month away from hearing about these iPhones. I thought there would be more of a consensus around if promotion is going to be included or it's not going to be included. And so far there has not been a consensus at all. I mean, you know, everything Apple Pro came out with these screenshots on his YouTube channel saying, oh, these are from iOS 14. And it was a setting for a ProMotion display that suggests that the new iPhones will have it. And then another rumor comes out that says, oh, no, Apple didn't get the uh, display controller modules in time. They didn't get enough of them to include the feature. So I don't, what might happen is that the higher-end models will have it, but the lower-end models won't have it. And maybe only the 6.7-inch most expensive model will have it. I think it'll be one of those things because the whole problem with the ProMotion feature is that Apple could not get enough of the display controllers, which is just a little device. I mean, it's a little part that connects to a display and controls what it does, essentially. It's like a little mini computer for the display. And they couldn't get enough of those units from their manufacturer. Because keep in mind, Apple Apple sells, let's see, 2019, they sold 189 million iPhones. 
So if they can't get 180, you know, if they can't get hundreds of millions of these parts for the ProMotion display, they can't include ProMotion. I mean, that's the problem. So the question is, did they get their supplier to ramp up production enough to include it in all models, or at least most of the models, or did they not get enough to include it at all in any of the iPhone 12 models, or did they get a medium amount just enough to include on one or two of the models? That's the question. I'm really hoping it's the, the last one or the first one. I don't think it's going to be the first one because there's just been too much talk about it not being included. So I think it's going to be the last one. It might just be an exclusive feature for the top one or two models. And I think that's all about the iPhone 12 I wanted to talk about. There were other leaks about the camera system. It it it's it has a lot of holes. This camera, this camera system leak has the three standard holes that we see in the iPhone 11 Pro, but it also has a hole on top for the LED flash, a hole on the bottom for the LiDAR scanner, and then a hole off to the side for the microphone. So you got six holes in this camera camera system. Now it won't be that, I don't think it'll be that obvious when it's all put together because it was just the aluminum frame. So it makes those you know openings look even more apparent. Uh, but it was just <laughs> because there were memes. I remember when there were memes when the iPhone 11 Pro came out because it went from, you know, we went from one camera lens to two camera lenses to three camera lenses. And then, you know, there were photos of an iPhone, an iPhone 30 that had like 50 camera lenses just taking up the entire backside of the phone. So it's just funny to see, you know, it's kind of headed in that direction. <laughs> um, but I'm really excited to see what what Apple is planning with LiDAR because they, they already included it with the uh, new iPad Pros this year. They're going to be including it with the new iPhones. And so far, I don't see much of a practical use case for a LiDAR scanner. You know, Apple says it will help with AR experiences, and I understand that they're focusing more and more on LiDAR. But my question is, what are we going to be, what is, I mean, not LiDAR, with uh, AR, augmented reality. What is augmented reality going to be doing for us in the near future that a LiDAR scanner will be, will, will make the experience so much better? Because people don't use AR on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, Apple is really going to have to, either come out with some product that's heavily AR based uh, to make it more relevant to our day-to-day -day lives. What I really hope doesn't happen with AR is that it goes the way of 3D touch. You know, what happened to 3D touch, it came out on the iPhone 6S. It was sort of its headlining feature. And it was a piece of hardware and software in the display where you would press press hard on the or you just put pressure on the display and it would trigger an action or controls that otherwise wouldn't have been possible so people were comparing it to sort of a right click on a mouse the problem was people didn't know it was there 
people didn't know about 3D Touch. I remember, I mean, that the feature was included with every iPhone until the 10R, I believe. And even though people had an iPhone that was capable of that feature, they didn't even use it or know it existed. And honestly, even with the Apple Watch, because 3D Touch or Force Touch is what it was originally called, debuted on the Apple Watch in 2015. And even today, people who have an Apple Watch do not know about that feature. And they don't use it. And it's been on every single Apple Watch. Um... And that's why a lot of people always ask me, why uh, why did my watch face change randomly? I can't get it to change back. How do I change my watch face? Because in order to change the watch face on your Apple Watch, you have to put pressure on the screen. You have to use that 3D touch feature that most people don't even know exists. So they phased out that, that feature. It's no longer on iPhones. And I'm honestly surprised they kept it around for the uh, Series 5 Apple Watch. I thought they would remove that from the Apple Watch. I, I expect them to, to be honest. Because that, uh, that feature requires a hardware component that takes up space in the device. And Apple is always about removing any unnecessary components. So I'm hoping that just like with the iPhone, because what happened is, yeah, they removed 3D Touch... But they replaced it with, oh, what's that called? They had 3D Touch. They replaced it with Haptic Touch. I think it's called Haptic Touch, where you just, you know, you you, you tap and hold on something. And when you hold on it, it'll trigger an action instead of pressing hard on it. I think we may see something like that on the Apple Watch. And I think that's better because most people don't see that feature. They don't see 3D Touch, so they don't know to do it. And what my point was is I would hate for augmented... Because there's so much potential in augmented reality, I would hate for it to go the way of 3D Touch where because Apple can't implement an incredible functional way to use augmented reality, people don't use it and they don't use a LiDAR scanner and the LiDAR scanner is taking up space. It's a hardware component in the camera system. And then Apple ends up removing it later on. Uh, that would be kind of disappointing because I am really excited to see what Apple has in store for us when it comes to augmented reality because I think there's so much potential with that technology. All right, now let's talk about the iPad Pro rumor that, of course, it's supposed to have... Um, a squared edge. Oh, I'm sorry. That's the iPhone. I'm getting this mixed up. The iPhone, of course, will have a square style edge similar to the iPad Pro. And the more expensive models will have the the, the, the Pro models will have the stainless steel edge, just like today, while the lower cost models have the aluminum edge. And I did want to talk about the iPad Pro, because there were rumors, I'm trying to find this, I thought I had this linked here, but I don't think I do. There were rumors of a fourth generation iPad Air that will have an edge-to-edge -edge display similar to what we see on the iPad Pro today, which is incredible if they can include that on, on the iPad Air, since it's a more affordable device. And it'll have, supposedly, 
touch ID in the volume button. And this is the really interesting part of this that I wanted to discuss because it has implications across Apple's device. I mean, across Apple's product line. If Apple puts a touch ID sensor in the power button of the iPad Air, I would understand why they would do that because Face ID is an expensive technology to include in a product and so they're unlikely to include it in a lower cost product like the iPad Air and they don't have space for the home button anymore on the iPad Air so they're gonna and the home button is what includes the uh, touch ID sensor so they would put that sensor in the power button which is interesting because I haven't I don't think I've seen a company do that before uh, there have been companies that move the touch the the fingerprint scanners to the back of their phones, but I'm, I don't think I've seen it integrated into a power button, which is really interesting because you use the power button to turn on the device. So it would be scanning your fingerprint while you wake up your device. So it's almost like you don't even realize it's happening. Sort of like Face ID, which is a huge reason why I love Face ID. I mean, yeah, yeah, Face ID. And it's cool. It's it's a great idea because of this COVID situation we're in today. People are wearing face masks all the time. And Face ID is becoming a frustrating way to unlock your phone because it doesn't work with a mask. You have to put in your passcode every time. So my question is... <laughs> Would Apple include this touch ID power button technology in the iPhone? Would they include it alongside Face ID? Because that would be kind of a unexpected move. Apple typically does not include multiple ways of doing anything. Because that would be, oh, you have two ways to unlock your device instead of just one way. But Apple typically likes to focus on one way that they consider the best. But they may have changed their tune because of this COVID situation where everyone's wearing masks. It would be nice to have a backup Touch ID integrated into the volume button. It's not taking up any more space on the outside of the device. You don't need a, a home button on the back or, or a... a uh, component on the back it'll be comfortable to do because the home button is already in a comfortable position so I mean, I, I'm really interested to see where that technology goes okay now I want to talk about the HomePod and AirPods studio HomePod Apple is expected to release a smaller HomePod probably not as focused on sound quality I'm sure they'll still sound good but I think they'll be focused on what it can do because that's ultimately the reason why people buy anything. What can I do with it? And the reason why the HomePod, I think, didn't sell very well is because, number one, people don't care as much about sound quality as Apple thinks or as Apple wants them to. <laughs> and it's too expensive. Um, what I mean is, of course, people can appreciate something with good sound quality, but they're not going to allow that to justify a $300 speaker purchase compared to a $150 Google Home or Amazon Alexa purchase. It's much more affordable. It may not sound as good, but you can still listen to music with it. You can still enjoy the sound that comes out of it. And it has a better assistant 
than the HomePod. Because HomePod, you have Siri, doesn't do as much as Google's Assistant or Amazon's Assistant. Even Microsoft Cortana, I think, is better at, at delivering more information. So I think Apple will be releasing a smaller, more affordable HomePod. Maybe it'll be $200 instead of $300. If they could get it down to $150, that would be incredible. I think they have a really good chance at selling a lot of units in the smart speaker market and maybe getting a really good chunk of that market if it's at $150. But the problem is it it's limited by Siri. And that's been my problem with HomePod since the beginning is that the way you interact with it is through Siri and Siri is the worst virtual assistant on the market. And I know Apple is is taking steps to improve it. I know that they said Siri will be delivering, what, what do they say, 20 times more data or 20 times better results, something like that with the new version of iOS 14. So I am hopeful that it will be improving soon and improving dramatically because that's really what it needs to be successful. So really, people who are on the fence about buying a HomePod today, uh, you may be happier with the HomePods today if your focus is sound quality because it may be getting worse with the next release because Apple's going to be focusing on a different area, on different strengths of HomePod rather than sound quality. Now, this is what I am most excited about. AirPods Studio. Now, there was a thread on Reddit about AirPods Studio. And someone, one of these comment and Reddit, you know, it's really a hit and miss. You get some good stuff and some really bad, just like, what are you talking about? And this is one of those moments where I was like, what are you talking about? One of the most upvoted comments was, there is no way. Apple will be naming this the AirPods Studio. It does not make any sense. Air, they were arguing that like the pod prefix uh, suffix implied something small. So they can't use pod for AirPods Studio because it's not small, which doesn't make sense because they already used pod with HomePod and HomePod is bigger than a pair of headphones. Um, and they also had a different argument about studio. Like they wouldn't they wouldn't use the, the word studio for some reason. And I couldn't remember his argument. It was a really, really bad argument. But it was like one of the most upvoted comments in the thread. And I was shocked because it was really a ridiculous, in my opinion, ridiculous take on the name. I think AirPods Studio name is great. It makes sense. AirPods, the AirPods brand is extremely recognizable. It's one of the most, it's the most popular headphone in the world. Why would they not use the word AirPod in a new pair of headphones that they're making? It would be stupid. It would like, it would be beat like the beats, not using the word beats in a new pair of beats headphones. It does not, not make sense at all. So of course they're going to use the word AirPods. And I think AirPods studio makes sense. Because you understand exactly what you're getting. Um, it's AirPods Studio implies the, the type of headphones that people wear in music studios. And most people know it's the kind that go over your ears. So it's a, it's great from a, a marketing standpoint. Rumored to be $350. These are going to be expensive. $350 more than a HomePod. But I am so excited about the design how it's going to feel. 
I'm excited about its features. I'm excited about the battery life. I'm excited about how you're going to charge it. I think Apple's going to do something incredible with these over-ear headphones. And it's a big deal to me because I have the older Bose QC35 twos, I think. And I they're my favorite headphones to use because the sound quality is incredible, because the noise cancellation is the best that I've ever heard. But the problem is battery life. I have to charge them like every other day. It's kind of annoying. The problem is comfort. Uh, they're heavy. Um, they just feel bulky on my head. And they slide around a little bit at the top. And the features we're looking at on the AirPods Studio, the, the rumored features like head and neck detection where the AirPods Studio will have a feature that knows if it's on your head or on your neck like like move down across your neck so that it stops playing music just like when you remove an AirPod from your ear it can detect that it's not in your ear so it pauses the song these will be able to do the same thing where you move it from your head to your neck and then it pauses the song and then resumes when you put it back on. That is a great feature. I love that feature of my AirPods. The Bose doesn't do that. I would love that feature. Also, orientation detection. Supposedly, it will have a feature that knows. Uh, first of all, these things are reversible. Which is I don't, I've never seen a pair of over-ear headphones that you can turn around in any direction. It's always, here's the right ear cup, here's the left ear cup, and you have to wear it like that. These won't be like that. You can literally pick them up, put them on. You don't have to look at which side goes on which ear, all that. Put them on. It automatically knows which ear cup is on which ear. And it will feed the audio through those channels in the correct orientation so there's no wrong way to put them on. That right there is a killer feature. People will be lining up for this thing just for that reason alone. And I don't know if you guys are excited about that feature as I am, but the moment I heard that, it was like, yes. Because the, here's the thing. When Apple makes products like this, when Apple makes something like a smartphone, they make something like an Apple Watch, there's always at least one feature that puts that product ahead of the competition. With the iPhone, it was a touch display. Um, with the Apple Watch, you know, there were several things about the Apple Watch that I think made it better than any other smartwatch on the market. The beautiful display, um, the software, the charging method, the sensors, the bands, the design. I mean, there's the, the, the digital crown. When it comes to these headphones, and, and with the AirPods, you know, I, th I think the killer feature was reliable wireless playback. Reliable wireless playback. Because when back in 2016, when the AirPods were released, if you ever used a pair of wireless headphones, Truly wireless headphones. I'm not talking about the ones that have a wire or that are connected by a band between the headphones. 
I'm talking about truly wireless headphones where each earbud is independently operated. You could not find one that was <laughs> that played anything reliably. Um, there was syncing problems. There was connection issues. It was a mess. I think there was only one pair of reliable headphones that did it, and they were three hundred dollars. And they, you know, of course, didn't have the design. They didn't have the one tap pairing. They didn't have those features that the AirPods had that Apple introduced. And that's what made the AirPods so successful. With these AirPods Studios, it simplifies the experience of using over-ear headphones so, so much. And I really hope they can implement sound quality that is incredible, that's like on par with Bose or with Sony. And I hope they can include an active noise cancellation that is on par with Bose as well and Sony. I mean, I think those are the two leading sound companies that do an incredible job with noise cancellation. If Apple can do that, because honestly, what Apple has already done with the AirPods Pro when it comes to active noise cancellation is incredible. It is incredible. I've when you when the first time I wore I I didn't even know it was possible to put active noise cancellation in a pair of earbuds because they're so tiny. But Apple did it. And even sound companies were shocked that they were able to do it, especially on such a high level. I mean, Samsung just tried, they just came out with, you know, the, the Galaxy Buds. They put in active, they say active noise cancellation. But people who reviewed the Galaxy Buds said, I really can't tell a difference. In, my, in, in the ambient noise when the feature is on or off. But AirPods Pro, you can absolutely tell the difference. Also, transparency mode. Apple has the best transparency mode I have ever heard. I've tried Sony's, I've tried Bose. The transparency mode on those headphones are not good enough to actually use functionally. It's just not good, it's very uncomfortable. It makes things sound really weird, it amplifies it into your ear in a really uncomfortable way. You can hear yourself speaking in a really weird way. Transparency mode on AirPods Pro is so natural sounding. It's almost weird. It's almost creepy. Because when you turn it on, it feels like your ears are open. Like It feels like you shouldn't have earbuds in your ear because everything is so clear around you. And it doesn't do that thing where it amplifies your voice into your own ear. And, and if they can, what I'm saying is, the, what they have done on AirPods so far has been so promising, so impressive. The sound team at Apple is incredible. And because of what they've already accomplished, I am so, so excited to see what they do with these AirPods Studio, what they can do with over-ear headphones, the design, the comfort, the battery life. I hope it has some kind of charging method that's like the Apple Watch where it's it's just magnetic and like bada-bing, bada-boom, you can just put it right on there. I don't know if it's going to be like a lightning kind of thing or a USB kind of thing. It's fine if it is, but I would just prefer something that's even more easy. Unless the battery life is so good that I only have to charge them once a week. Then I don't mind if I have to plug something in to charge it. I am just so excited. I think that's one of my top um, 
Apple products that I'm looking forward to right now is the AirPod Studio, even though they are uh, $350. <laughs> so for, for, for the AirPod Studio, we're, we're expected to see that this fall. So I think with, with the Apple event that will happen, we, and we don't know, we don't know if it's gonna be this month, September, we don't know if it's gonna be next month, October. We're expected to see that new iPad Air. We're expected to see the new Apple Watch, new iPhone 12, uh, maybe even AirTags the AirPod Studio. If they do release all these products all at the same time, that will be, oh man, that will be so much fun. <laughs> that will be so cool. I cannot wait to, to see what's in store. I can't wait for them to announce that event. All right, guys, so that is all the Apple news, rumors, leaks I wanna talk about this week. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I hope you guys have a great week. And I will catch you next Friday to catch you up on all the latest Apple news.